0: Hi, thanks again for tuning into the podcast, Asking for a Friend. Today's episode, we have Josh and Daisha, and the question that they're going to dive into is, can I trust my Bible? They talk about the canon of scripture, how it got selected, how do we know it's close to the original text? What about all the variants, and what does history and archeology span say? Lastly, we'll hear from Daisha about how scripture has impacted her life. This is a great episode, Let's listen to what Josh and Daisha have to say about trusting our Bibles.
1: Hello, and welcome to Asking for a Friend. We are going to dive into another big and challenging question that uh, I know many, many of you have. And the question is Can I trust my Bible? Uh, Today I have Daisha Watts with me. Daisha is married uh, and also a mother of four children. Um, Daisha is also a thinker, Uh, she loves studying the word. And so she's going to be very valuable for this conversation. We do just want to say that we are not biblical scholars, but we do love the word of God. Um, And so our encouragement, you know, at the end of the day is that you would be what the Bible describes as a Berean, those who looked at scripture for themselves, found the truth for themselves. You know, we're going to give you our perspective and our answer to this question, but ultimately we want the Holy Spirit to speak to you. And he does that through, through the Bible. And so... That's our encouragement to you. So can I trust my Bible? I think this question is really important because for me, if we can trust our Bible, then we can trust God, then we can obey God. If we can't trust our Bible, then really, how are we able to trust God and obey God? And so that's why this answer is really important. So Daisha, why is this question important to you?
2: So, first off, the Bible makes some extremely large claims for itself. In Hebrews 4, 12-13, it says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The second huge claim in Scripture is 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Those are very large claims for the, from the Scripture itself. The other thing is, as a Christian, we base our faith on the person of Jesus who is revealed in Scripture. If we don't have confidence that Scripture is reliable, um, what are we basing our faith on?
1: Well, let's kind of dive into the answer to this question. And I just want to start with the canon of Scripture. I feel like this is uh, pretty important, and I just want to start with this. So, when we talk about the canon of Scripture, um, it's basically defined as the books of the Bible that were officially accepted as Holy scripture. And, um, so we know the Bible was written by 40 authors around the span of 1500 years. And so it was absolutely essential that a list be drawn up of books that reflected the heart of God's message and were inspired by the Holy spirit. And so the canon had to be identified by religious leaders because unfortunately God did not drop down, um, a letter from heaven saying, I want this book in there, I want this book in there. No, like we uh, human beings had to develop this. And so it was, you know, first done by Jewish rabbis and scholars, and then um, later by early Christians. So, how were the writings included in the Bible determined? Um, there were three key principles uh, that have been observed over time. And so the first one was the their writing had to take place through a recognized prophet, um, or someone affiliated with a prophet or an apostle or someone, you know, associated with the apostle or even like a family member of Jesus, (laughs) because, you know, we see the half brother, we see uh, James and Jude, they, they all have their writings in the Bible also. So if you're, so if you're related to Jesus, you're kind of legit. And so you kind of uh, get to contribute to the Bible, um, so that was the first key thing uh, that these writers had to be those 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 people. Um, second, uh, the writing could not contradict the previous inspired scripture, which sounds really reasonable to me. We don't want that type of conflict. And then third, the writings had to be widely accepted by the church and its leaders as inspired. And when I say inspired, when we define inspiration, um, it means that we have the very words of God in our Bible. It's, it's not the pages or the ink or the chapters or the verses or anything like the actual words are inspired. And all the books that, that made it in the canon, they were widely accepted throughout the centuries uh, in the Christian church as the inspired word of God. So the canon of scripture, this is really important. It was written early. It was determined early, and it has been unchanged since then. Uh, and so for me, we can confidently accept the Bible today as God's word uh, because of the canon of scripture. Um, and so I think that's really important. So we can trust the canon of scripture. Um, let's talk about, I'm going to have you dive into textual criticism, um, which we would define as this method used to determine what the original manuscript of, of manuscripts of the Bible uh, said. So, go ahead.
2: Absolutely. So, a quote from Mark Moore, a professor that I knew from Ozark Christian College, said, I don't worship the Bible. My faith is not in the Bible. It's not in a manuscript. It's in a man. But if this manuscript is God's word, then the man is God's son, which is a profound quote from him. And I'm just going to jump into some definitions of textual criticism. Like you said, essentially, do we have the right words? autographs are the original documents that left the author's hands. We don't have any of these and no one claims that we do. A manuscript was a handwritten copy of the autograph. So, the New Testament was uh, copied by hand for 1,400 years. And we years. have a few of those. We have a lot of those. Um, and these. this was copied by hand for 1,400 years. Um, a variant. So if we laid every manuscript copy that we have out and we um, looked word by word, any place that there's a different difference in manuscript is considered a variant and I'll get into some examples of that. So before we do that, one of the big things is how many manuscripts do we have? And let's compare that to works of antiquity. So Plato, we're all familiar with him. Um, There are seven manuscript copies. Caesar's Gallic Wars, we have 10 copies. Homer's Iliad is second only to the New Testament with 643 manuscripts. And like you said, we have a few of the Greek New Testament manuscripts, a total of 5,800 and more as they are being discovered. That doesn't include the 10,000 Latin manuscripts or the five to 10,000 ancient manuscripts of other languages or the quotations from church fathers that encompass the majority of the New Testament text, which is estimated anywhere over a million. Um, the distance between the author and the oldest manuscript that we have is also very important. When we look at Plato— the difference from when it was written to our earliest copy is a total of 1,300 years. With Caesar's War, Gallic Wars, there is a difference of a thousand years from when it was originally written to our oldest manuscript. Um, uh, Tacitus, again, a thousand-year time gap. When we look at the Greek New Testament, there is a fragment called P52. This is a papyrus manuscript that was acquired on the Egyptian market in 1920. It has parts of John 18:31 through 33 on one side and on the other side is 18:37 through 38. Granted this is a small manuscript fragment. It's actually on display at the John Rylands University. Um, in Manchester, but most scholars date the Gospel of John to AD 80 through 100. So this manuscript fragment is thought to be anywhere dated from 100 to 150, AD 100 to 150. Some even believe it's as early as AD 94. So this would put this manuscript fragment just digits away from the original autograph or at the most 40 years if we're using conservative dates. Within 125 years of the completion of the New Testament, we have over 43% of all the verses found in the papyri, and within 250 years after the Greek New Testament was written, which is 8350, 350, we have the entire Greek New Testament. When we compare this to any other ancient writing of antiquity that has a gap of 400 years to 1,300 years, um, we don't ever question the reliability of those texts, and yet there is a lot of skepticism as it relates to the Greek New Testament. Um, F.E. Peters states that on the basis of manuscript tradition alone, the works that made up the Christians' New Testaments were the most frequently copied and widely circulated books of antiquity.
1: You you mentioned variants. Yes. So um, with all these manuscripts, um, sometimes, well, a lot of the times, scribes uh, often made small changes to them. Some of them were unintentional, and some of them were intentional. So can you touch on that?
2: Yeah, so... um, First of all, just to describe how many variants we have. So, the Greek New Testament is 138,000 words, and we have 400,000 variants. That sounds like a lot, but let me explain to you. So, the nature of the variants is way more important than the number. I'm going to go through some examples. Um, One type of variant is either an omission or an addition to the text, and I'm going to go through Mark 16, 9 through 20. This is one of two long passages. The other passage is John 8, which I'm not going to get into today, but this is an example. So Mark 16 typically ends at verse 8, which is the women leaving the tomb in fear. There is a bracketed area in your Bible um, that will say even the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. 9 through 20 is kind of a cleaned up ending. So, Jesus has appeared to the women, to the disciples. He gives the charge to go into all the world, and then it ends with his ascension. Yes. So there's hope. So the thought is that um, people were uncomfortable with how Mark 8 ended. And so scribes added this second ending. Most think it was added in the second century, but it was not an original authorship of Mark. The two oldest complete manuscripts do not have Mark 9 through 20, Um, and some that do have it, they have a marking called a scolia, which is a scribe would write in the margin of a text if they had questions or concerns. So, that's another suggestion that this was not an original uh, John 5, 4 is another example. So, if you're looking in your Bible, you read verse 3. It skips verse 4, and it goes into verse 5. However, verse 4 is written in the footnotes. This was the scene where the invalid of 38 years was laying by the pool of Bethsaida, and Jesus asked him if he wanted to be well, and he was saying, nobody has let me or helped me into the pool. Um, the verse 4 states, from time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever diseases he had. It is thought that by scholars that John never wrote this, um, but a scribe who wanted to add clarity and um, clarification to this story added this detail into the text. So variants of zero significance. It's important to know seventy percent, actually over seventy percent of variants are differences or errors in spelling. John in Greek can be spelled with one n or two n's. Every time that that name is spelled differently is considered a variant. Um, another insignificant. So actual
1: like slips of the pen. Yes. Writing a word absolutely. twice. Mm-hmm. Punctuation or yep. whatever. Okay.
2: Yeah, Greeks um, put an art, Greek language put an article in front of proper names, so the Jesus. We don't translate it the Jesus. We say Jesus. So every time that there is an article in front of a name, is considered a variant. Some texts write Jesus Christ. Others say Christ Jesus. They transpose those word orders. That's considered a variant. Some use synonyms, some use conjunctions, some exclude conjunctions. Um, you had made mention that they make unintentional errors. Um, an unintentional error in Romans 5, 1 is an example. Um, our text or translation says, we have peace with God. This is a very concrete, real, it's not by works, but it's by faith. There is a variant that says, let us have peace with God, which so is not intentional Mary. This is, this is an unintentional actually. Unintentional. Yeah. So the Greek um, wording for let us have, and we have is just a difference in the a long or a short O in Greek. And so it's thought that even possibly one um, scribe was reading the text and then several other scribes were, um, you know, writing this. Mm-hmm. Um, again, in this ancient era, With these hand copies, the church was underground. There was a need for these letters to be copied amongst the entire ancient world. So, was this just an auditory error? Very possibly could. Um, Some scribes intentionally made errors. So, on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke omits in spirit. Um, But some scribes try to fix Luke's writing so it fits well with Matthews, and so they add that in spirit. Again, Mm -hmm. a variant. What's very important is that no significant or biblical doctrine is affected by the known variants. Again, nature over the number. One of the greatest manuscript scholars, F.F. Bruce, calculated that we have 99.9% accuracy in our Greek manuscripts compared to the autographs written by the apostles. And the remaining 0.1% have no significant impact on the biblical doctrine. There's nothing about Jesus, Paul, or the growth of the church. Mm. As people are doing some of this research themselves, they're going to come across an author named Bart Ehrman. He considers himself an agnostic atheist Mm atheist not sure if there's a God, but doesn't believe that the God of the Bible is true. And he wrote um, a very widely circulated book called Misquoting Jesus. And even in his appendix, um, he's having a There's a quote um, of him comparing himself to Bruce Metzger, which is a biblical scholar at Princeton Theological Seminary. And um, this is his quote. He says, The position I argue for in misquoting Jesus does not actually stand at odds with Professor Metzger's positions that the essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. Mm -hmm. Um, So, on basis of that alone, the sheer number of manuscripts that we have, um, those as we are discovering more manuscripts, w- those variants are going to increase. But do they affect the actual meaning of the text? In ninety nine point nine percent, they do not.
1: Yeah, I actually actually took a quote from Bart out of that same book. Um, he says most of the changes found in early Christian manuscripts have nothing to do with theology or ideology. Far and away, the most changes are the result of mistakes, pure and simple, slips of the pen, accidental omissions, inadvertent additions, misspelled words, blunders of one sort or of another. And this is interesting because you mentioned he is not like an agnostic uh, man, like with with no faith system, and so, um, but he was able to just be honest about all that. Okay, so let's transition a bit because, you know, it's easy to talk about the canon of scripture. It's easy to talk about textual criticism, but if there are no historical or archaeological claims to all of this, um, someone like me, who's kind of cynical, we would have a hard time trusting uh, what we just got done talking about. So let's talk about history. Let's talk about archaeology. Let's talk about eyewitness stuff. So go ahead.
2: So, eyewitnesses. So, um, we consider the gospel writers the eyewitnesses um, to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. They had a specific audience with a specific purpose, and they used selection, meaning they chose the details of the story that they wrote about and testified to Jesus in accordance to the audience and the purpose for what they were writing. So, we have Matthew, we have Mark, and we have John as the apostles. So, Mark was actually the scribe of Peter. So, when we're looking at um, Peter and John, those were two apostles that were in the inner three. So, they lived life among Jesus during Efs. his... Yes, during his earthly ministry, John was known to be the disciple whom Jesus loved. So, these men um, wrote a testimony to the life of Christ. Um, Luke was not an eyewitness, and he states that right in the beginning of Luke that he was not an eyewitness, but that he took extensive, detailed work to interview the eyewitnesses of his time. And um, these writings, these gospel testimonies, they were written not centuries after the fact. They were written during the lifetime of the people who were actually there. So, 30 to 50 years. Um, not only that, all of these men, except for John, um, were martyred. So, they, their faith in their eyewitness account was so strong that they were willing to die for what they believed. I love this quote from um, Geisler. He says, they, the, speaking of the eyewitnesses, they remained steadfast in their testimony under extreme persecution, even to the point of martyrdom, which almost all the apostles underwent. Men will sometimes die for what they believe to be true, but never for what they know to be false. Mm. A man becomes extremely honest and truthful under the threat of death.
1: Yeah. I think that is just so powerful, um, because all of the apostles except John were, were martyred be, because of their faith, um, and you know they went through these torturous, like gruesome deaths, um, but we know that they died for what they believed in. I mean, people don't die for something they made up. Um, like they knew that there was something after death. They knew. Like, they were fully convinced that they were going to be in the presence of God because of what they saw, heard, experienced firsthand. So that's that's really powerful. Everyone, all the apostles died except John. They tried, but yeah, yeah it didn't work. So what about the death and the resurrection? Um, those eyewitnesses. Yeah,
2: so there were eyewitnesses to the death of Jesus includes a lot the women the Roman soldiers the two criminals the Roman centurion um, the chief priests and the Jewish leaders um, the multitudes and the disciples so one of the texts in Mark 15 40 through 41 states some women who are watching from a distance among them were Mary Magdalene Mary the mon- mother of James the younger and of Joseph in Salome in Galilee these women had followed him and cared for his needs many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem were also there. Um, I love the quote in Mark about the centurion. When Christ died, he exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. So, even the onlookers recognized something different about his death. There were many eyewitnesses also to the resurrection. Um, Again, a lot of the women, Peter, the apostles, and Paul notes in 1 Corinthians 15.5, as he's speaking of the appearances to the people after the resurrection, he says, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Acts 1.3 also says, after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He was eating with them, drinking with them. Speaking with them, he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke of the kingdom of God. I love the quote from Geisler. He says, all in all, we possess eyewitness testimony and documents that were recorded between 20 to 50 years or so after the actual events themselves. This means that the New Testament documents are authentic first century and first-hand information about the life, teachings, death, and resurrection of Christ.
1: Let's talk about archaeology a little bit. Um, You know, we have the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is really fun. Um, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947 um, by an Arab boy um, while he was tending sheep, actually. He threw a rock in a cave and heard a jar break, and then, um, and then we see history. Uh, so since the initial discovery, some 100,000 fragments and uh, intact scrolls comprising over 800 volumes have been found since 1947 and um, in 11 other caves near the Dead Sea. Uh, They were written between 200 BC and 70 AD. Uh, The great implication of these scrolls is that they validated the reliability of our current copies, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. And so as 1900 years had passed since the writing of the New Testament and even more the Old Testament, we really didn't have an answer um, other than faith and reason um, as to why our scriptures are reliable as to why we can trust our Bible. Um, and so, as these texts were examined, they were found to be nearly identical to the text we had at that time. Uh, and so, this shows to me that our current copies have by no means been corrupted. So, archaeology, what else?
2: So, archaeology is a huge topic, and we're, we can't go into it all today. There's books that are written, um, but it's Important to know that over 25,000 archaeological finds have supported the biblical narrative, and not a single archaeological find has contradicted anything in the Bible, which is astounding.
1: Okay, so we talked about archaeology, history, um, but we also have writings out there from authors who are outside of the faith. Yes. Uh, people like Josephus. hmm
2: Yeah, so Josephus was a Jewish historian, not a Christian. Um, He was a contemporary of Jesus. I believe he was born in 67. It's probably not important, but... um, So Josephus um, quotes... There's a quote in Antiquities that mentions that Jesus was a wise man, if, if it's lawful to call him a man, he states. He was a doer of wonderful works. He drew many Jews and Gentiles to him. It mentions that Pilate condemned him to death on a cross, it suggests or it mentions that Jesus appeared to his followers on the third day and that Christians are not extinct to this day. Josephus also mentions James, his half-brother, and his martyrdom in some of his antiquities. Other external sources um, that are along the lines of Josephus or is Thallus. He actually wrote about the eclipse of the sun, so when Christ was crucified, It was 3 p.m. There was an earthquake. The sun was eclipsed. He actually speaks of the darkness that took place at that hour. Um, Josephus also mentions James, the half-brother of Jesus, and talks about his martyrdom being stoned to death. Um, The Talmud writes, and I'm just going to read, it says, On the eve of Passover, Yeshua was hanged. For 40 days before the execution took place, a herald went forth and cried, He is going forth to be stoned because he has practiced sorcery. Um, and it says that since nobody came forward, he was hanged on the eve of the Passover fits right in line with the dates and the Passover of the gospel accounts. There are many other, um, secular sources that they can read. This is a great book. It's the new evidence that, um, demands a verdict by Josh McDowell, several other sources that they can read about as well.
1: So, we have a few resources for you if you want to continue studying on this topic. For me, um, I read a lot out of Mark Roberts' book called Can We Trust the Gospels? And that'll be in the description. Uh, how about you?
2: So, I have several. I would recommend The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. Um, the Geisler that I um, use a lot for the apologetics, it's called Christian Apologetics, and um, There's also from F.F. Bruce, he was like a very well-known scholar, the New Testament documents, are they reliable? Those have been great resources for me. Um, Another one that is a little different kind of a... A lighter read is Cold Case Christianity. So he is a homicide detective in California, and he was an atheist and became a Christian as he started um, searching out the evidences. So that's an easier read, I would say, than these are very textually heavy.
1: Mm -hmm. I've heard a lot of good things about that book. Yeah. Awesome. Well, um, do you have any last thoughts on this topic or just scripture in general that that you want to encourage us with?
2: I'm just going to tell you a story from a couple years ago. So, um... I had my fourth baby. She was about five months old, had been very sick um, with a COVID-like illness for a couple months. I was going through some situations with my second child who has special needs. We had gone a whole pandemic year without any services. Um, I was extremely sleep deprived and my marriage was just not in a place that I wanted it to be. And the only word I can really use to describe this season was just a despair. I knew that I needed Jesus to speak into my darkness, and I would just write in my journal, Jesus, just one word from you, just one word. And um, I knew that He wasn't necessarily going to change my circumstances, but I needed Him to speak life into me. So at the time, I was studying Genesis with a few other women, and our text was Genesis 20 through 22, but specifically Genesis 21, 14 through 20. I'll just kind of summarize this text. So this is when Isaac was being weaned. He was the, the promised son of Sarah and Abraham and um, Ishmael, who was the son of Hagar, her maidservant, was mocking um, Isaac. So, Sarah told her husband Abraham, get rid of Hagar and Ishmael. So, the next morning, he packed them food and water, and he sent them on the way. And the text says that um, Hagar wandered in the desert of Beersheba. Um, Sometime later, she ran out of water um, and she put Ishmael under a bush, and then she went about a bowshot away because she couldn't stand to watch him die. And there she began to sob. And it's, the text says, God heard Ishmael crying, and the angel of the Lord called out to Hagar in verses 17 through 18, and he said, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then the text says, Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. Uh, this text might seem bizarre. Um, But I could see myself. Like Hagar, I felt I was wandering. I was lacking direction and purpose. I was afraid. I felt unseen, unheard, unknown. My future felt desolate, and I was despairing. God called her by name and asked her, what is the matter? He knew, but he was inviting her and acknowledging her pain through that question. Um, He was inviting her to share her heart, communicating that he wanted to know her and hear her. He said, do not be afraid. So he cut straight to the heart matter. He demonstrated that she was known. He states, God has heard. So our cries and hers did not go unheard by the God of the universe. And then I love that, then God opened her eyes. If we remember back to Genesis 16, this was the first time that Hagar fled from Sarah. And she had what I think is probably a Christophany in the spring of the desert. And she said, um, you are the God who sees me, for I have now seen the one who sees me. So not only did God see her, But he gave her a new perspective. He provided for her immediate physical need and her deeper need of hope in place of despair, his presence in place of her loneliness, and his promise in place of her fear. Like Hagar, God saw my physically exhausted and emotionally depleted state, and he revealed how my greatest need was to rest in him. He saw my loneliness and motherhood, and he reminded me that he knew my heart even if no one else did. He acknowledged my fears over Luke, my son with special needs, and he— gently said, you know, you are worried about His future, and He encouraged me to lay that down. He spoke hope and healing into my spirit and replaced my weariness with His presence and His peace. So in life, it's rarely been my circumstances that have changed um, during difficult seasons of life, but Scripture has been the truth that has upheld me and provided a pathway through my challenges and pain. God meets our very deepest needs. He calls us his own. He provides for us along the way. He meets us exactly where we are. He gives us purpose and direction, eyes of faith, to see what only he can reveal in our hearts. Our identity is rooted in the fact that we are children of the living God, deeply cared for and loved. Um, He demonstrates his care and his intimate knowledge for us when he is involved in our daily lives. So this has been the supernatural power of scripture made alive in my heart, and it radically changes my life. It is the one word that I prayed for that God faithfully gives us when we seek him out in scripture.
1: So we believe that you can trust your Bible. Isn't that right? Absolutely. Um, and if you want more info, we, we have those resources that, that we talked about. Um, or you can contact one of the pastors here. Um,
0: Daisha, thank you so much for joining me.
2: Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Yeah,
1: no problem. And then, uh,
0: we will see you next time. It was great to hear from Josh and Daisha as they discussed the reliability of our Bibles. And personally, I love Daisha's story at the end of how scripture has impacted her life. If you're wanting to know more information about this topic, we have a resource link below. And if you have any questions, reach out to one of our pastors here at Life Church. Our contact can be found in the description below. If you haven't yet subscribed to our podcast, we're on Apple and Google Podcasts, as well as Spotify. We're always looking to engage with new questions that are relevant to you. So if you have a question, submit it below by following the link. Thanks again for tuning in to Asking for a Friend. We'll see you next time.